Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 142, Space Shuttle Flight 68, STS-67. A little more of the old ultraviolet. Last time, we channeled our inner Tom Stafford and brought Space Shuttle Discovery as close to docking with the Russian space station Mir as it was possible to get without actually doing it. The US and Russia weren't quite ready to cross those final 10 meters just yet, but we're getting really close. The flight also provided a convenient technical problem in the form of a thruster leak. It wasn't mission-threatening, and it also wasn't trivial, serving as a great tutorial level for the two space agencies, which have gotten a little rusty at working together. Today's story will be focusing less on meters and more on light years, because today we're talking about Astro 2. If you're having trouble remembering Astro 1 off the top of your head, you can perhaps be forgiven, since it flew on STS-35 30 missions ago. If nothing else, the Astro payload would be notable since, in a rarity for NASA experiments, it isn't some tortured acronym like, I don't know, Awesome Space Telescope Ready for Orbit? (laughs) It's just Astro. But actually, there are plenty of other reasons why Astro 1 was notable. It was a groundbreaking experiment in the area of ultraviolet astronomy. Ultraviolet, of course, is a form of light that has a shorter wavelength than the visible light we all know and love. As the name would imply, it's the light that you get if you go from green to blue to indigo to violet, and then just keep going. The human eye can't see the light anymore, but it's still there. UV light is perhaps best known as the source of psychedelic posters and nasty sunburns, but it's also a super useful tool for astronomers. UV light is generated by high-energy events and can provide valuable clues into how stars are born and die, the nature of the early universe, and countless other things. The trouble is, most UV light is blocked by the Earth's atmosphere. This is great for you, me, and any other non-plant creature that enjoys staying alive, but it's a bummer if you're an astronomer who wants to collect that light to learn about the universe. It's for this reason that other than a few precious minutes above the atmosphere on suborbital sounding rockets, Astro 1 was the first opportunity for the scientific community to really see what was going on in space in the ultraviolet spectrum. Which is pretty wild when you consider that it didn't fly until December of 1990. Just another reminder that we're still continuing to learn and discover new things about the universe all the time. Astro 1 was a huge win for astronomers, but the mission could have gone a little better. Plagued by technical problems, the crew and ground had to scramble to come up with clever workarounds and salvage what they could from the mission. For example, by the fifth day of the mission, both of the devices used to enter and display data for the payload computer had failed. They had apparently overheated after their vents were clogged with lint. Yet another way that spaceflight will not tolerate carelessness, incapacity, and neglect. Bet you didn't think that lint would be on the list of stuff that would get you. Thankfully for everyone, among the STS-35 crew were several professional astronomers, and with a lot of interaction with the ground and some manual pointing of the instruments, most of the mission's goals were able to be completed successfully. The unique data provided by these ultraviolet instruments only further increased the astronomy community's appetite for more. So here we are again, flying Astro 2. In order to gather as much data as possible and take advantage of their brief time on orbit, for STS-67, that brief time was going to be a little less brief than normal. Space Shuttle Endeavour would be carrying the Extended Duration Orbiter Pallet at the back of its payload bay, containing several tons of additional hydrogen and oxygen. 
The hydrogen and oxygen provided additional reactants to Endeavor's fuel cells, which provided more electricity, which provided more time on orbit. In fact, they were going to go for the record. Since we'll have so much time on orbit to peer out into the payload bay, let's hold off on a detailed rundown of the Astro instruments until after Miko. But first, let's meet the crew. Commanding the mission was Steve Oswald, who we last saw flying as pilot on STS-56. Maybe Oswald just likes flying payloads that start with an A and end with a 2, since on that flight he helped usher Atlas II safely into orbit and back, and this time he'll be doing the same with Astro II. Well, I guess we'll never know, because while he'll stick around as a manager, this is his third and final flight. Joining Oz up front would be today's pilot, Bill Gregory. William Gregory was born on May 14, 1957 in Lockport, New York. Gregory attended the U.S. Air Force Academy before picking up master's degrees in engineering from Columbia University and management from Troy State. For five years, he was an operational fighter pilot, soaring through the skies in an F-111 before moving on to the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School. As a test pilot at Edwards, he flew the F-4, A-7D, and F-15, with over 40 different types of aircraft eventually finding their way into his flight log over the course of his career. After all that, it's no surprise that in 1990 he was selected as an astronaut. I've seen several sources note that he goes by the nickname Borneo, but I didn't see why that was his nickname, so I guess it'll just be a fun mystery, especially because just as we're getting to know Borneo, he's heading off, since this is his first and only flight. Someone who will be sticking around a little bit longer can be found sitting directly behind Gregory, Mission Specialist 1, John Grunsfeld. John Grunsfeld was born in Chicago, Illinois, which means he's probably one of the few people to move to the Boston area and think that the winters aren't so cold. That's because Grunsfeld headed east to attend the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, earning a bachelor's degree in physics. He then headed back to Chicago, picking up a master's and then a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago. Grunsfeld studied to become an astronomer, and become an astronomer he did. Among other things, he spent a year at the University of Tokyo as a visiting scientist, studied X-ray and gamma-ray astronomy, and probed binary pulsars using a variety of satellites and telescopes. Grunsfeld was selected as an astronaut in 1992, and this is his first of five flights, including three to the Hubble Space Telescope. Fun fact, Grunsfeld is the only person to have seen the Hubble up close in space three times. Sitting in the center seat was Mission Specialist 2, Wendy Lawrence. Wendy Lawrence was born on July 2, 1959 in Jacksonville, Florida. She attended the U.S. Naval Academy, picking up a bachelor's degree in ocean engineering, and a little bit later down the road would earn a master's in the same subject from MIT. In between, she became a naval aviator, specializing in helicopters. Over the course of her career, she logged over 1,500 hours flying six different types of helicopters, including more than 800 landings on ships. After nine years of that, she returned to the U.S. Naval Academy as a physics instructor. She was selected as an astronaut in 1992, and this is her first of four flights. Oh, and 21 years after this mission, she had her picture taken with some space nerd who only three weeks earlier had started a spaceflight history podcast. Moving downstairs, we find Mission Specialist 3 and our second astronomer on this flight, Tammy Jernigan. We last saw Jernigan when she was flying on Space Shuttle Columbia for STS-52, which among other things deployed the Lagios 2 payload. This is her third of five flights. Believe it or not, we've still got two astronomers to go in the form of our two payload specialists. 
Payload Specialist 1 was Sam Durance, who we know from STS-35, which makes sense since that flew the Astro-1 mission. This is Durance's second and final flight. And last but certainly not least, and perhaps not a surprise, was Payload Specialist 2, Ron Paris. We last saw Paris flying alongside his Payload Specialist colleague, Sam Durance, on STS-35. And just like Durance, this is his second and final flight. Having Durance and Paris along on STS-35 was especially helpful, since they were not only astronomers, but were intimately involved with the telescopes that make up the Astro package. So when technical snags cropped up, they were able to help salvage the mission. Thankfully, things will go a little smoother this time. When the scheduled launch day arrived, the weather was looking pretty iffy, as Florida weather is wont to do, with only around a 20-40% to chance of favorable conditions. In fact, later the commander commented that the crew sort of considered it to be a dress rehearsal for the launch, since their chances of actually going were so slim. But 20%'s not nothing, so the decision was made to proceed with the countdown anyway and hope for the best. The launch was scheduled for the middle of the night, which is unusual for a non-rendezvous mission, but just because the shuttle wasn't rendezvousing with another spacecraft didn't mean it didn't have orbit requirements. In this case, the goal was to ensure that Endeavour only passed through the South Atlantic anomaly during orbital daytime. Wait, what? Okay, quick step back. Way back on NASA's first ever uncrewed orbital flight, a belt of radiation was discovered around the Earth. The planet's magnetic field was trapping charged particles from the sun and accelerating them to crazy speeds. These belts of radiation were dubbed the Van Allen belts after James Van Allen, the scientist responsible for the instrument that discovered them. There are two main belts, one closer to the Earth and one a little further away, and they can be troublesome to space missions. If your spacecraft contains fragile little humans who have somehow found themselves in this unlikely environment, they can rapidly impart unhealthy amounts of radiation. In fact, this is often brought up by doofuses who don't believe that humans have been to the moon. They point out that flying through the Van Allen belts would be too dangerous to the crews, apparently neglecting to notice that the Apollo crews actually flew pretty darn fast, so they weren't in the belts for very long. But they're right that you don't want to hang out in the Van Allen belts if you can help it. We actually encountered this when the high-flying Gemini 11 spent a little time in the Van Allen belts. But even if you're talking about an uncrewed mission, the Van Allen belts can be trouble. The high radiation can mess with electronics, confusing or outright breaking the onboard computers. Luckily, the inner belt doesn't start until around 1,000 kilometers in altitude, so low-orbit missions still have plenty of room to play. Why am I telling you all this? Because while in general the Van Allen belts are up pretty high, there's one location where they dip down low, a location we call the South Atlantic Anomaly. When spacecraft fly through this region, roughly off the coast of Brazil, operators can expect to encounter more computer issues than usual. To give you an idea of how impactful this can be, one of the requirements on the mission I work on for my day job, OSAM-1, is that the capture of Landsat 7 can't happen inside the South Atlantic Anomaly. The chances are too high for a computer to flip into safe mode or some other nasty surprise that would interrupt the rendezvous. So, in this case, since Astro 2 would be using a bunch of sensitive imaging equipment and photographic film, the decision was made to ensure that passes through the South Atlantic anomaly happened in daylight, when less sensitive observations were being done anyway. That's a pretty long-winded way of saying that they launched in the middle of the night to avoid making sensitive observations while flying through the SAA, but I think it's cool how restrictions like this can propagate through the mission design and lead to something like a middle-of-the-night launch. 
As the countdown approached zero, everything proceeded smoothly, including the weather. Other than a minor fuel cell degradation issue caused by some residual helium in the lines to the extended duration orbiter pallet, and a problem with the heater on the flash evaporator system, everything worked great. So with only a 73 second delay on March 2nd, 1995 at 1.38 a.m., Space Shuttle Endeavour lit up the Florida sky and STS-67 was underway. If you were to somehow find yourself in March of 1995, first I would advise you to buy some Apple stock, but also if you wanted to follow the day-by-day twists and turns of the mission, you'd have a new option at your disposal. For the first time, NASA was providing live coverage of a space shuttle mission on this newfangled thing called a website. It's kind of funny seeing what we consider to be pretty basic stuff treated as such a foreign concept. One source wrote, Computer users could follow the progress of the mission on the STS-67 quote-unquote homepage on the World Wide Web. I actually tried to find this website by using archive.org's invaluable tool, the Wayback Machine, but the page was so old it actually predated archive.org, which is pretty wild. But don't worry, time traveler. If you missed it, you'll have another chance since, quote, Individuals at Marshall Space Flight Center who initiated the experiment plan to repeat the online experience for an upcoming Space Lab flight this fall. Yes, this experiment of having a website. Just be sure to keep your copy of Netscape Navigator up to date. The ride to orbit was uneventful, and the payload bay doors were soon open as the crews scrambled out of their pressure suits and began to calibrate the instruments. But there was one minor hiccup. A thruster leak. Now, I didn't expect to be talking so much about reaction control thrusters for two episodes in a row, but I thought this was pretty interesting, especially since now we know a little bit more about them. Shortly into the mission, the temperature of the oxidizer injector on thruster L5D reported it was too cold, a strong indicator of a leak. Thanks to the previous episode, we can identify thruster L5D as being on the left ohms pod pointing down. And since it's on Fuel Manifold 5, it's one of these small vernier jets. The thruster was shut down and the primary jets took over while the crew and mission control investigated. It turns out that this hiccup was anticipated. The last time Endeavour flew, on STS-68, they saw the same problem. But it turns out that there wasn't actually a leak, it was just some wonky instrumentation. So, back on STS-67, before long a pre-approved computer tweak was uplinked to Endeavour, slightly changing the tolerances on the oxidizer injector temperature in order to prevent the false positive. The reason I found this interesting was that it's a great example of how the space shuttle's redundancy helped to maintain not just safety, but also mission operations. The ground crews could have removed and replaced the thruster after STS-68, but they weren't even planning on taking the left ohms pod off, let alone digging around in the plumbing. It would have cost a bunch of time and money. Instead, they looked at the situation. What if the sensor misbehaved again? Well, if it was a small false positive like last time, they could just tweak the limits. Okay, but what if it exceeded the new limits with a stronger false positive? Well, they could fall back on the temperature of the fuel injector for the same thruster. Okay, but what if the thruster actually failed? Well, they'd lose a downward-facing vernier jet on the left side, but there were three primary thrusters that could also do the same job. So, despite the issue, it was fine to fly with the thruster as is. This kind of call is obviously a difficult one to make, and we've seen the decision to fly as is and rely on backup systems lead to failure and heartbreak before. But to me, something like this is a sign of a healthy operational program, and that's pretty cool. 
Not to be left out, around 12 hours into the mission, the R4R thruster also started leaking, which required the crew to close the covers on the Astro instruments for around an hour, but since they were still calibrating, there was no great loss. Okay, so we're in orbit. The instruments are calibrated, the thrusters have settled down, and it was time to start collecting observations. We've got more than two weeks to get as much science as possible done, which is good because we've got over 600 celestial objects that we're hoping to examine. Let's do a quick tour of the instruments. To visualize the astro payload, imagine a cluster of big metal cylinders, each around a meter wide and around four meters long, along with a few thinner cylinders and some weird boxes and wires and stuff. All of this was mounted on what looks like a fancy tripod, but what we recognize as the instrument pointing system, which we first saw fly on STS-51F, and which we're actually seeing for the third and final time right now. The instrument pointing system, or IPS, does what it says on the box, and allows the crew to point the instrument cluster at whatever astronomical object they're studying. It was necessary, since while the orbiter itself is able to provide some pretty tight attitude control, the IPS was able to build on that and provide a rock-solid foundation for these instruments. First, let's look at the Hopkins Ultraviolet Telescope, or HUT. Sporting some fancy improvements that increased its sensitivity threefold from last time, the Hopkins Ultraviolet Telescope would be doing a few different things, but its primary goal on this flight was to look for intergalactic helium, which isn't just a great potential band name. The thought was that as part of the birth of the universe, shortly after the Big Bang, some helium was created and was spread all around and might just be hanging out in the vast spaces between the galaxies. So finding this helium would help refine our understanding of the early universe. But you can't just see the helium, so scientists were going to have to get a little clever. Instead of looking for the helium directly, they were going to use HUT to look at certain quasars, high-energy objects that put out a lot of high-energy light. This light would have traveled for billions of light years across the intergalactic void, and if along the way it encountered any helium, the light would have been subtly changed. By analyzing the wavelengths of light received and creating a spectrogram, scientists were able to detect those changes and infer the presence of helium, if it was there. The same spectral analysis could be used to determine what elements are present in objects from billions of light years away, just by their light alone. If you're waiting for me to tell you if they found helium or not, this is the part where I remind you that these scientific studies typically don't come out for a few years and usually are not in my giant pile of NASA documents, so I don't actually know. So I'm just going to move on before drawing even more attention to that anticlimactic conclusion. Alongside the Hopkins Ultraviolet Telescope was the Wisconsin Ultraviolet Photopolarimeter Experiment, which has the delightful acronym WHOOPI. WHOOPI would also be using spectrometry to analyze distant objects, but it could also take advantage of another property of light, its polarization. Light is made up of two parts, an electric field and a magnetic field, with both fields perpendicular to each other. The fields continuously cancel each other out and build themselves back up, propagating through space, and that's how light moves. Since the fields are always perpendicular to each other, they have a defined orientation. Let's say you're looking right at the beam of light as it arrives. Is the electrical field horizontal and the magnetic field vertical? Or maybe the electric field is vertical and the magnetic field is horizontal? Or maybe they're both tilted part way. What we're describing is the polarization of the light. Typically, light comes in just a random assortment of polarizations all over the place. But certain interactions can cause that polarization to become less random and orient the photons to the same polarization. 
So by carefully measuring the polarization of light from distant objects, we can learn about stuff we can't see, such as magnetic fields and interstellar dust. So suddenly we can detect super powerful magnetic fields around rapidly spinning dead stars, or judge the density of dust clouds between the stars. It's pretty slick. Maybe this is obvious, but I love how scientists can take something like the orientation of light waves, think about it for a while, perform a couple of measurements, and then be able to tell us, oh, that thing all the way across the galaxy? Yeah, here's how strong its magnetic field is. It's just amazing. And the last instrument we'll talk about today is the Ultraviolet Imaging Telescope. This telescope would be taking photos that were each big enough to include enough of the sky that the moon would fit nicely in the center without too much extra space around it. That's actually pretty wide for a telescope, which typically focus in on a smaller angular area. For example, WIFPIC, the Hubble Space Telescope's wide-field planetary camera, covered an area 250 times smaller. But the Ultraviolet Imaging Telescope wouldn't just be taking big photos, it'd also be taking long photos, with exposures lasting up to 30 minutes. By taking such long exposures on sensitive film, it was possible to observe stars that were 100 million times fainter than the faintest star that you can see on Earth with the naked eye. But geez, a 30-minute exposure? If there's one thing we've learned from all of these self-analysis experiments that look at the environment on and around the orbiter, it's that the orbiter is a pretty noisy vehicle. You've got thrusters firing, crew members bouncing around, fuel cells churning, the waste collection system flushing. It's a lot of stuff that can disturb a 30-minute long photo. So, in addition to the already super-stable instrument pointing system, the Ultraviolet Imaging Telescope took advantage of a clever mechanism that utilized accelerometers and computer-controlled mirrors to make a hyper-stable platform for long-exposure photography. Once they got back to Earth, the film would be developed and scanned into images that were 2,048 pixels on each side, and were still far enough back in the 1990s that the NASA press kit felt the need to explain what pixels are. Throughout the lengthy flight, the schedule was broken up into blocks that were two revolutions long, just over three hours. Most of the time, one instrument would take priority on one target, and typically the other instruments would also look at the same thing, putting their particular strengths to use, but it was also possible to study nearby celestial objects. As you might expect from a flight like this, the crew was broken up into two shifts, with the red shift consisting of Commander Steve Oswald, Pilot Bill Gregory, Mission Specialist John Grunsfeld, and Payload Specialist Ron Paris. The blue shift was led by Mission Specialists Tammy Jernigan and Wendy Lawrence, along with Payload Specialist Sam Durant, with Jernigan serving as the overall payload commander. Each shift had a Mission Specialist to help operate the instrument pointing system, a Payload Specialist to help run the instruments, and a third crew member to perform any attitude maneuvers required of the orbiter. For the red shift, that would be the commander and the pilot, and for the blue shift, it was mission specialist and flight engineer, Wendy Lawrence. For each observation, the mission specialist and payload specialist would be assisted by a laptop running a program that gave a computer-generated view of the sky, allowing them to easily see where they were pointing. On top of that, they could also superimpose the computer images of the star field on top of the actual images coming from the instruments. When the desired star field lined up with the actual image, they knew that they were on target. Thanks to a helpful list in the May-slash-June 1995 issue of Countdown magazine, I can just read you the whole procedure. This is a little bit wordy, but it's good to be reminded that when I casually say something like, the crew made an observation using the instruments, it's actually a whole series of complicated steps. 
And in fact, these steps from Countdown are themselves glossing over a lot of details. Also, just a reminder, MS is Mission Specialist and PS is Payload Specialist. Here we go. Crew reviews and, if necessary, modifies pre-launch observation parameters. MS inputs right ascension and declination, target coordinates, into IPS via DDU. PS commands instruments to safe configuration for maneuver to target. Endeavor is maneuvered to observation attitude. MS moves IPS so that observation target is in hut and whoopee fields of view. PS turns instrument on and identifies star field from star tracker television image. MS or PS adjusts IPS to place target in the hut aperture. PS initiates whoopee data acquisition and UIT and WFS exposure sequences. PS or MS monitors IPS pointing in hut and whoopee acquisition cameras. PS evaluates spectrum of object to verify that it has the expected shape and that there is sufficient exposure time. Crew reviews the next target in the mission plan. So, yeah, just a little complicated. Tammy Jernigan later told the Smithsonian, quote, On STS-67, we got into a rhythm of astronomical observations, and there was a lot of time when the cockpit was darkened. We were running a 24-hour observatory. You would monitor observation of an object for maybe 20 minutes before you had to regroup, repoint the instrument pointing system, and set up the instruments again. So there were whole blocks of time where you could just look out and reflect, talk to the other crew members who are awake on your shift, and really have a sense of what a beautiful universe we inhabit. Unquote. I believe one reason for the three-hour schedule blocks was that it made it easier to adjust the schedule on the fly in response to technical issues or to unexpected opportunities. For example, on a few flights now, we've seen a volcano erupt on the Earth, providing the crew with a nice science-rich target to point their instruments towards. Well, on flight day three, the same thing happened, but a little bit further away from home. NASA's Infrared Telescope Facility in Hawaii noticed that Io, the closest of Jupiter's Galilean moons, was erupting. Io was so close to Jupiter that the tidal forces from the planet literally squeezed the moon, flexing it and prompting frequent volcanic activity. But with Astro on orbit, it was a great opportunity to measure it with ultraviolet instrumentation. One source mentioned that the idea here was to measure Io during and after the eruption to see if maybe the frequent volcanic activity contributed to an atmosphere around the moon. Io's volcanic activity is pretty cool. It's too bad that it looks like Dijon mustard that's been left on a plate in the sun for a few weeks. That's right, I'm calling Io out as the ugliest moon. That's an official The Space Above Us stance. <laughs> Io was not the only unexpected target either. Only a week before the launch, a binary star system that was thought to be pretty stable suddenly got a thousand times brighter. The thought was that the two-star pair was made up of a typical star and a super-dense white dwarf. The sudden increase in brightness could be the white dwarf pulling blobs of gas off of the normal star and gobbling them up. Another great high-energy event for Astro to observe. Plus, the sudden brightness illuminated the entire area around the star more than usual, potentially revealing dust and other stuff that's normally tricky to see. The second flight of the Astro package of instruments was a huge success for the astronomy community, but it turns out there was one more ultraviolet telescope aboard Endeavour, and its name was Endeavour. This is actually just a weird coincidence, but yes, we have the Endeavour telescope flying on the Endeavour orbiter, both named after the same ship used by Captain James Cook to explore the Pacific Ocean. The telescope was actually a pretty big deal in Australia, since it was their biggest space project in something like 20 years. Taking the form of two getaway special canisters, the telescope took up one canister, with data cables leading to a second canister that contained the control equipment. 
If I'm understanding the mechanism correctly, the telescope was actually sort of two telescopes, one with a wide spectral range and one that was more tightly focused on one specific part of the UV spectrum. By subtracting the wide image from the tight image, a cleaner UV measurement could be obtained. Endeavor could only look where Endeavor was pointed, which is a confusing sentence, but I'm rolling with it. The telescope quietly did its thing in the back of the payload bay throughout the entire mission and was a complete success, so good job, Australia. Not every experiment on STS-67 was related to astronomy. We have the usual suite of protein crystal experiments and stuff like testing the astronauts' vision and microgravity, and there was also a pretty neat experiment called the Mid-Deck Active Control Experiment, or MACE. This was a weird, gangly-looking experiment that was seeking to investigate control methods for, well, weird, gangly-looking things. The question was, if you had a space station with long, flexible appendages, could you prevent movement and vibration in one part from disrupting the entire structure? Could you control it without building up a resonance and making the whole thing start flapping around and breaking? And that's what Mace was going to try to answer. The apparatus was just under 2 meters long and was covered in weird little modules containing reaction control wheels and actuators. One set of actuators would impart a specific motion, and another would try to damp it out, all while floating freely in the mid-deck. When it was working properly, it sort of looked like it wasn't doing anything at all, but on the rare occasion that it was not working properly, it would start gyrating around with more and more intensity, to the amusement of the crew. In fact, one crew member, Commander Oswald, enjoyed the experiment so much that he requested extra time with the apparatus, eventually returning over 50% more data than was originally planned. It's got to be nice to be an experiment principal investigator and realize that the shuttle mission's commander has taken a personal interest in your experiment. On flight day 13, I imagine the crew were probably starting to get a little tired. Even with two and a half days of free time spread throughout the flight, doing precise work and long shifts day after day has to get old eventually. But there was some exciting news to break up the potential monotony. On March 14th, just after midnight Houston time, a Russian Soyuz rocket carrying a Soyuz spacecraft launched into orbit. On board was the first American to launch on a Russian rocket, Norm Thagard, on his way to a lengthy stay on Mir. With the successful launch, we now had 13 people in space at the same time. Seven on Space Shuttle Endeavour, three on Mir, and three more having just launched. Two days later, the crew were informed that Thagard and his Russian crewmates had successfully docked with Mir, beginning their multi-month-long mission. Later that day, Oswald and Thagard, who had previously flown together on STS-42, were once again able to enjoy a chat in space, this time over the radio. And this also marks the first time that NASA astronauts are flying on two different space missions since the Gemini 6 and 7 crews. Pretty cool. I'm sure you can guess how this next part starts. As the end of the mission wrapped up, the crew safed the instruments and started making preparations to head home until the Florida weather said no. So the lengthy mission got one day lengthier. Since the telescopes were already stowed and the crew had already mostly prepared the cabin the previous day, there was nothing to do but just enjoy the view out the window. A perfect way to end a mission. But finally, after cutting their losses and turning their sights towards Edwards, Space Shuttle Endeavour performed the deorbit maneuver and soared through an uneventful re-entry and touchdown. The flight established a new duration record for the Space Shuttle, clocking in at 16 days, 15 hours, 8 minutes, and 48 seconds. STS-67 was a complete success, leaving the researchers who worked on the Astro payload ecstatic with the results. Astro-1 and Astro-2 performed some truly groundbreaking ultraviolet astronomy, 
and together make up one of the big science success stories for the space shuttle program. They also provide a great example of the payload specialist program working exactly as intended. Mission specialists and payload specialists worked side by side and combined their intimate knowledge of the orbiter systems and the scientific equipment to salvage a mission in trouble on Astro 1 and to return a wealth of data on Astro 2. I think that the people who first worked on the early proposals for the shuttle in the early 1970s must have looked at this flight with pride. Next time. It's good that Norm Thaggard safely made it to Mir, and it was fun talking to him on the radio, but don't you think he might be getting a little homesick up there? His Russian colleagues are great, but I think he needs a little company from the good old US of A. So how about we go up and visit him? Yeah, that sounds like fun. This next mission will be a real hoot. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. Thank you.